You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. I'm happy to welcome back to the podcast our friend Peter Hyatt from the Sanctuary Church in Denver. We're continuing our conversation about the Book of Romans. Peter, it's good to visit with you again. Yeah, it's great to visit with you, David. Well, I guess the place I'd like to start with you is that I was listening to one of your sermons on the Sanctuary Downtown Sermon Podcast, and I found out something about you, Peter, that you were kind of a big deal in the soccer world at one point. And how were you able to let all of that soccer talent not just go to your head and puff up your ego? <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't. I was a big deal, by the way, too. Ninth grade, I was on the soccer team. I even had a cheerleader girlfriend who kissed me once. So it was a big deal. And um, in the sermon I talked about, uh, I guess I, I was talking about trophies and boasting because that's the topic that Paul brings up, you know, in Romans chapter three. And um, I think the story you're referring to is in the sermon I shared about how me and some of my soccer buddies were leaving the football game, the varsity football game, and my friend Bobby Vandekoppel's dad's green, I don't know, it was probably like a 1978 AMC Matador or something. Uh-huh. And we were driving out of the game. Everybody was walking, you know, from the from the stadium in Littleton. And we were hanging out the windows yelling, uh, football sucks, soccer rules, football sucks, soccer rules. And um, Bobby, who happened to be driving the car, was also hanging out the window yelling. He had just gotten his license, didn't notice that the cars in front of him had stopped. And so we just slammed into this long string of cars. You know, nobody's uh, physical bodies were hurt. But what I said in the sermon is my ego was just crucified. I just sat there um, so utterly humiliated. And I think my point was that I had kind of made soccer my life, my soccer achievements my life. And so when my boasting was kind of exposed, uh, I was exposed and crucified. And the following year, I got cut from the soccer team because uh, I really wasn't that great of a soccer player. But soccer was a big deal in Littleton. But anyway, I, I remember one day I went down behind the house and just sat in a hole and just sobbed thinking, how am I going to explain to my, you know, grandchildren that I got cut from the soccer team? Cause I, <laughs> I thought that was everything, but that year, that year we formed a little, we formed a club team and they handed out trophies and, uh, it was a picture. Ironically, it was a picture of a boy kicking a ball, you know, and, uh, but I, I just put the trophy in the basement. I had forgotten about it till my son was home over Christmas. And he came up and said, Hey dad, here's your trophy. I think I'd probably let him take it to his room or something. And I just wanted to keep it hidden because my trophy, you know, was really a trophy of, of shame. And, uh, I think in the message, I talked about how church kind of becomes a trophy and, um, I tied it into the idea that we've always find sneaky ways to boast. And Paul says, Paul seems to say that faith and boasting are mutually exclusive and all my boasting you know really is faith in me and god is bound and determined to kind of expose that and yet i think that you know the beautiful message of the gospel is that 
he uses that to reveal his mercy. And it turns out in the end that um, we are God's trophy. We're his trophy of grace that he creates through Jesus. And even our faith is the work of his grace. So, you know, your book, David, is titled so well um, that, you know, grace saves all and grace creates faith in all. That's what that's what I believe. Um, so anyway, yeah, my <laughs> bo- boasting becomes incredibly painful. And yet I think God mm-hmm. turns it around into this amazing gift. And of course, Paul, you know, he he was on the soccer team or Rabbi Saul, and he was maybe the best player, he says. And lo and behold, uh, Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and totally undoes him. And yet that old trophy of Paul's shame is transformed into well, Paul becomes God's trophy of, of grace. So it's good news. It's just like uh, if you avoid boasting, you avoid a lot of pain. Well, one of the things uh, that I also, well, I noticed that what you said is that grace produces faith. And that was once I realized that, the primacy of grace and everything, that was a big moment for me. And I like how you talk about how children, when they watch superhero movies and they see Superman or, or Spider-Man, they're inspired then to go into action to they're, they're inspired by that. And it's, it's like this, they saw this thing, this in, and it just got into them and it put them in and it puts them into motion. And so I like the way that you talk about that. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. Well, there's this, yeah, there's this cool thing that's going on in Paul's theology, and it it really shows up. Every well, I think it shows up in the whole Bible, but people will use different words for it. But in First Corinthians 15, he talks about how um, the, the, you know, the first man was a man of dust, the last man is a man of spirit, and um, as in Adam we all die, and so in Christ we all be made alive, and he says, um, and then he, and he talks about. Um, the, when he says last Adam, he talks about the last Adam in first Corinthians 15 and the word is eschatos, uh, which is, you know, can be translated ultimate or final. And, um, so really Jesus is the, the Superman. And if I try to make myself Superman, it's just, it's absolutely, um, what's devastating. And, and that's what our boasting is. We, think you know, we we take knowledge of good and evil from the tree then we apply it to ourselves saying well this is what the good is and so i'm i'm going to make myself superman and then we judge each other saying if you don't make yourself superman then you know god will endlessly torture you and if you do maybe you'll get you know some gold in heaven or something but the, i think the beautiful message that paul is saying is that the superman makes himself us somehow and i in the sermon at one point I showed, I just Googled, you know, boys playing Superman or kids playing Superman. Found mm-hmm. this video somewhere of two little boys playing Superman. And the way they, we were talking about how do we become Superman. And the and the way they ran around the yard in their little red cape and blue leotards just looked so fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, the, and so we asked the question, well, how... When they're Superman, is does that feel like a painful obligation or is that a joy? And I think that's a picture of what worship is. And that's how God wants us to imitate him. You know, Paul says that in other places, imitate God as beloved, uh, as beloved children. And 
when I do that, um, what was work and labor becomes this new thing called play. It's not because I have to, it's because I get to. And Paul talked about how God does this in that he, he demonstrates his, you know, he demonstrates his love for us in Jesus. He puts on a show in Jesus. So Jesus really is the eschatos Adam who saves all humanity and he saves us from ourselves, uh, from our old, from our boasting and our ego in which we're trapped. And when we worship Jesus, I mean, maybe you could say it this way, is that, and I think this is what scripture is saying, we are what we worship. So if you're trying to justify yourself, you're worshiping yourself and your ability to justify yourself. But if you're worshiping someone else, you forget yourself and then you find yourself worshiping that someone else. So when you go to, a, you know, a, a movie <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, you got lots of stories about this, you, you end up acting like the people that you worship in the movie. So no one said to those little boys running around the yard, you know, you really should be Superman. So you go get a red cape and you try really, really hard to be Superman. And in fact, let's see who can be the best Superman, which then turns everybody against each other. And then I'll grade you in the end and see if you're able to do it. Uh, You know, that would just be death to little kids playing in the backyard. But if you take them to a movie of Superman, they watch Superman, they fall in love with Superman. And then you look them in the eye and you say, you know, I think you're like Superman. I think you're super. Well, those little kids, they'll they'll go outside, start running around the yard, and they'll begin, they'll they'll act like Superman. But it's not an obligation; it's a mm-hmm. it's a gift. And I think the life of the, a beautiful example, you know, because Paul keeps taking us back to the garden, and Jesus, the original, the ultimate man, the Superman, he undoes the work of the devil when he's tempted in the wilderness. You remember the. He's taken out of the, led by the spirit out into the wilderness. And in while he's being tempted, he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the father. And just before the temptation is when he's baptized by John. And um, mm-hmm. he hears the voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So I think the, the, the beautiful thing that Jesus the Superman does to destroy the devil is he just believes the word of his father. And I think the the faith that Jesus creates in us or he gives to us, which Paul talks about being in his very blood, is that ability to look at our father in heaven and hear what he says to his son, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I think if we really heard that voice from the father, we'd all start running around the yard in blue leotards and little red capes. And, um, and, and, and Paul is talking about Abraham. And he said, Abraham's faith grew as he gave glory to God. And the, like the little boys in the video, I go, well, I don't think they're worried about glorifying themselves. They're glorifying Superman. And their lives are like an expression of that worship. And that's why it's it's fun. And that's what faith is. And that's why... If we credit faith to ourselves, we well we we destroy everything um, because then we're no longer worshiping the Superman; we're worshiping ourselves. But when we worship the Superman, we lose our psyches in the Superman, and then we find our psyches in the Superman. So th- those boys worshiping in the moment they forget themselves, and lo and behold, they 
they be incarnate the Superman. <laughs> it's it's yeah. uh, such a, you know, I guess that's such a hopeful picture. I think that's what the hope is that, that Paul's talking about. Well, faith is, I know when I didn't grow up going to church, and when I heard Christians talking about faith and being saved by faith, I thought it meant, well, faith means believing a certain set of things. Mm-hmm. And it um, must be really hard to believe those things because there's, some of those things sound really hard to believe in. We have to believe that he came back from the dead. We have to believe that he was born of a virgin. And, and, and you know, they talked about the Bible. And uh, so it seemed like having faith was somehow being able to believe all the things. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, was, it was about believing. It was about believing things. Um, but the, what I came to understand is that that faith is really more like trust. It's it's about trusting, and so yeah. So so I've started to think faith is more like a verb, faithing. So yeah. so Abraham was faithing, and he was moving it, and and because he'd had this experience of God, he was able to move out and do things that he couldn't do before. And we see, and we see Jesus faithing. Yeah, and. And and then that inspires the faith in, that we want to trust. We want to do that. We want to do that too. So that way, it all ends up being a gift. Yeah, that we yeah, just exactly. see and experience. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's just a nat- it goes naturally with what the word faith means. And you know, in in Greek, there there the faith is a verb and a noun, and all those words are related. But in English, we change it to faith sometimes to belief other times depending on whether it's a noun or a verb but it's all the the same word group which is yeah which is trust and the nature of trust is you glorify the one that you trust so i think we maybe we talked about this last time but if i said well i'm really something you know i'm so great it's really hard my wife i trust my wife and i'm so proud of me that i trust my wife because it's really tough trusting well that's not trust if i trust Mm -hmm. my wife i say she's amazing she's wonderful she's trustworthy and i forget about me and glorify her and i i do believe that's exactly what paul's talking about and this is the funny thing and this is where i think paul keeps going back to the garden story and that's my the thing that really gets me juiced is that the, the ultimate example of trust that Paul's talking about is, well, there's two. There's Abraham and Jesus that he's been talking about. And um, Abraham's big moment of faith is when he's on Mount Moriah and God um, asks him to sacrifice the blessing, which is absolutely everything that Abraham has been working for his entire life. So at that moment, it's what Kierkegaard, you know, called the, what the teleology or the categorical suspension of the ethical or the teleological suspension of the ethical or something. But the point is that at that moment, God made absolutely no sense to Abraham. Uh, Everything he knew about good and bad and what he should do in that moment um, got annihilated as he surrendered his heart to the Father and said, well, you gave me this blessing, so I'll surrender this blessing back to you. It's an absolutely shocking story because it flies in the face of all of our religious sensibilities. But then the other story that's just like it is Jesus on the very same mountain gets hung on a tree, which, you know, I think goes back to the very picture of the, of the garden. 
And on the tree, he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the start of Psalm 22, but I think he was living Psalm 22. And when he cries, why, 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 he's saying, I don't know. And yet the very thing we took from the tree is knowledge. So he's surrendering the knowledge to his father saying, why have, it feels like you've forsaken me. He, in that, and I think that's faith. He surrenders to the person. And then, of course, the psalm goes on to say that you have not turned your face away from me and everyone in the dust will, you know, will, will worship. And the psalm is such a beautiful picture. But right. that moment of faith is, okay, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust Abba. I'm going to trust my dad um, when, when this makes no sense to me. Well, Paul uh, looks, I think, to Abraham as this example of of trust, and he spends a lot of time in the the fourth chapter of of Romans on that, and then he he moves from that and then begins the fifth chapter of Romans, and he starts to really kind of tie this all together, but some of the implications of all of it. And so I thought mm-hmm. what we'd do now is just kind of go through the fifth chapter of Romans verse by verse, and and see what we can we can pull, we can pull out of this. And so I'll use the uh, NIV. That's a very common evangelical translation. So we'll just start with verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you see there? Well, it's interesting that when he says we've been justified I I normally use the ESV, but then go back to the Greek because that because in Romans they I don't think most of the translators have the same picture that Paul had. But when he says justified by faith, the preposition there is this little preposition ek, which is normally translated from faith. Um, and Paul Paul is saying, look, I've made this argument that faith is not your work. Faith comes through grace, and now we're justified of faith, and it's even the faith of Jesus. He, he says that, and that you know that's this that argument. I think we talked about last time. But um, if if we're justified by Jesus' faith, not our own faith, he's going to go on to talk about the implications of that, and um, that's where we. It seems to me that the modern American church drops out of the argument and and doesn't follow Paul's logic. Well, yeah, because if you look at it, we're justified through faith instead of justified of faith. Then what you can start to think is, okay, well, faith is this thing I need to produce. And then once I produce it, I'll have peace. But the problem is you can't produce enough of it to get you the peace. Right. And then you can't, you can't create it. Yeah. So either you're told, you know, you have to create it. You have to create enough of it for it to count, or you told you're told that you can't create it, that only God creates it, but He doesn't create it for everybody. So yeah. go ahead and try, and maybe you're one of the elect, unless you're deceiving yourself. Yeah. So yeah, okay. either way, it turns into this crazy mind game. Yeah. So either way, what the ironic thing to me is uh, how little peace the people ended up actually having. Yeah. The, Unless you understand it the way you're talking about, it doesn't generate peace. It generates anxiety. Yeah, which is exactly the problem of the law and the whole point of of Israel's failure in in the wilderness, and well, and then throughout their 
their history up until the time of the Christ. So instead of trusting the Superman, they end up killing the Superman on a tree, trying to take his life to justify themselves. And so, so yeah, if, if faith isn't a gift and you think you need it, you end up crucifying the Messiah trying to get it. <laughs> okay, so let's continue on to verse 2. It's talking about, yeah. we just said we've had peace, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we go into verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What do you see there? Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's cool that it says he says in now is I think I don't the ESV doesn't have that I have to go back and look at the Greek but but his point is we stand in grace but we don't know we stand in grace because we don't have faith which I think is true of everybody and gets back to this really simple idea that if we are the creation of God then everything is grace but the problem is we don't know everything is grace. Because we believe the lie of the snake who said, hey, take knowledge and use that knowledge to justify yourself, which which means, you know, justifies a bad word because we brutalize it. But it basically means to make yourself right and to be justified is for God to look at you and say, yep, you're you're right. Um, and you're right because I've made you right. So we, we, I think all of humanity stands in that grace just by virtue of the fact that we're created. We're created out of nothing. So there's nothing we bring to the table to bargain with God about in order to create ourselves. It's just a, kind of an, it's like a, it's like a newborn infant saying, Hey, I just gave birth to myself. And, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I don't think you quite understand this, but, uh, but, but it's through faith that we come to realize that reality, which is always there. And even the faith is something that is, is a, is the work of God in us. Well, the, it, just the, 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 the kind of the problem that you can have with reading, at least as the NIV has it, it seems to, it seems to make faith into a ticket that we present in order to get the grace. So yeah. we gain like, like you gain access to a movie theater, by buying a ticket and handing the ticket over, and then you get to go into the movie theater. And it makes it sound like, well, that's what we do. We get the faith, and that's the ticket, and then we present it, and then we see if we get to go into the movie or not, if 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 our ticket works, or if we have yeah. enough to get the ticket. And so yeah. then the anxiety is about, how do I get the faith so I can get the grace? Yeah, yeah, when I think that, the, the more accurate picture would be that you're already there. You're already in the theater. You're already at the banquet, but you've got a blindfold over your eyes. So um, you have to come to the realization that you have a blindfold. And, you know, Jesus even said that about the Pharisees. They're, they're blind. And so someone needs to take their blindfold off. And um, I think Paul's making the argument that, yeah, God has to do that. So it's not a, it's a you, you can't produce the ticket, but faith is absolutely necessary because, Heaven is the is a relationship with my the Creator, my Father. Well, if I'm convinced that I'm my own Creator, I cannot exist in His presence without being utterly terrified, because His very presence undoes the false me, the one that I think I am. So, if I think my ego, my boasting tells me Peter Hyatt is a guy that deserves a soccer trophy. Well, in the presence of God, that just gets that that gets utterly exposed. So if I think that's who I am, 
well, I get destroyed. So in a sense, um, every, well, everybody has to get destroyed in that sense that your ego has to be, that human ego has to be exposed, revealed and undone. And that's utterly, utterly terrifying if you think that you are your boasting or your resume or your accomplishments. Mm-hmm. Well, the way I put it sometimes is that faith or trust doesn't include us what it does is it allows us to experience that in which we have already been included yeah. so that we can open our eyes to it and walk in it and faith in it and yeah. Yeah. and do and put our cape on and run around and have a great time yeah yeah mm-hmm. yep i think that's exactly right all right let's look at um i'm gonna put i think uh three and four and five together because they all seem yeah. to kind of run together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Mm-hmm. So what do you see there? Well, I, I think the huge thing is that Paul's talking about this process that it's the process of creation um, that this this love pours into our heart, and then this love does all these things. Well, you know, if you take what John says seriously, well, God is love, and um, he who loves is born of God and knows God. And he's been talking about Abraham and the promised seed. So, I think that the seed and in, in Scripture is this indestructible seed, which turns out to be Jesus. That Jesus is poured into our hearts through the love of God. And takes us on a journey, and the 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 sufferings that you go through have a purpose, and the purpose is to produce endurance, and endurance produce tested character, and then to produce hope. And we, you know, and hope will not. He says, hope does not disappoint us. In other words, um, hope works. Hope will not push to shame or not disappoint us, depending on the translation, um, and. You know, in Corinthians, he says, faith, hope, and love abide. The greatest of these is love. Well, I think he's saying God is at work in you, and he's creating you, which is another one of my big things that I think when we look at the Genesis story really well in the first few chapters, it reveals that we're still in the process of being created, and we're somehow observing our own creation, which is a part of finishing us in the image and likeness of God. And you remember on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished at the end of this sixth day, the edge of the seventh. Um, and uh, to me, that's just an incur- and a wonderful message. So the little boys run around the yard in the backyard playing Superman, probably had a good dad or mom who's, who's looked at them and said, I know who you are. You're super. And they become super. They incarnate the Superman by playing in the backyard. And we're in the process of incarnating God. We're the image and likeness of God. We're, who was it? I can't remember who said it, but man is God appearing in the universe. So when when I love, it's not that I choose to love, it's that love chose to manifest himself in me because God is love and he wants to live his life uh, through me. So the the big thing is that I think is that we're still in the process of being created and observing our own creation then is somehow has this amazing benefit once that creation is finished. All right, let's move on to verse six. Yeah. Where Paul says, you see 
at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What do you see there? Well, I think it's saying that when humanity was at its absolute worst, when we did our absolute worst, God did his absolute best. So that's the that's the story of the cross. All of even every one of uh Jesus' disciples abandoned all humanity turned against the incarnation of the one who is life and the one who is good. And the very epitome of evil is we take the life of the good, everything dies, and lo and behold, God gives the life of the good. And so in the very place where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Um, I think that's Paul's logic. Well, the, uh, you know, when, I guess one of the problems I've had looking at that and try to understand it is in some contexts, they'll say, yeah, well, he died for the ungodly, but that doesn't mean the ungodly are now going to be saved. It just means he died for, it just means he, he died for them. So it doesn't yeah. really accomplish salvation. It it means it. He loves you so much that he died for you, so that you might have the chance yeah. to to get in on the, on the salvation. Right. So at that point, they totally undo everything that Paul has said for the previous four chapters, because what they're saying is that faith is my own creation. So I'm justified by a good decision. And Paul has gone through all this effort to say, look, we're all under sin. We're all slaves of sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. Quotes the Old Testament. So when people do that, I'm just like, gee, do you not read? I, I mean, I really, I shouldn't say that. That sounds ungracious because, I, I mean, I, it's, it's our nature to uh, give credit to ourselves. But that's exactly what Paul has been talking about for four chapters. And now he's going to go on. Um, to spell out the implications of this throughout the whole book of Romans. And he says very clearly that faith is a gift. Um, and, And when he talks about justification, what is it that makes us right? As we go through, I've been keeping track of it. But in at the start of, you know, in chapter three, he says, well, it's grace, it's gift. That's what justifies us. And then we had the conversation, it's the faith of Jesus. It's not our faith in Jesus, but somehow Jesus' faith that gets given to us is this gift. And then he reiterates it and says, well, it's, it's faith apart from works that justifies us to make it clear, look, it's not this thing you do. And then in 425, he's going to say, well, he just did say, he said it's the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised for our justification. And then in 59, he's going to tell us, We've been justified by his blood. So it's like, and the life is in in the blood. And uh, then in, yeah, and then in verse 18, he calls it the justification of life and Jesus is alive. All those things are things that Jesus does. And then a wild one, when we get to six, because we're just looking at this, he says, the one who died has been justified (laughs) from sin. It's a crazy verse, but basically Jesus does everything and um, and he wants to do everything through you, but you have to die first. You have to give up that idea that you save yourself. Well, one of the things that, uh, like in verse 6, sometimes the way it gets read is, is if that Paul left out a word. And the word mm-hmm. that he left out was elect, because what, what, it, what Paul really meant to say was, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the elect, for the... yeah. Well, I th- I think that's a, I think 
he could have written that. But then he goes on to explain who the elect is. And what I tell people, if you or, follow or it's like maybe law, some Christ, Christ died for some of the ungodly. Right. He died for some of the ungodly. And <laughs> Paul's just going, no, is Paul's going to go on and say, yes, the ungodly. And this is, let me f- make this point. If people are reading Romans, Paul makes a big deal out of election. But if you pay close attention, it's not about the fact that some are elect and some aren't elect because Israel is elect and yet they lose their salvation and they get it back. And, and you have to ask, is it elect unto what? But the point I think that Paul is making with election is really clear and we forget it because of all of our theological language. So you could use the word elect or you could use the word choice. And Paul is saying, the whole point of your being elected is that you were elected. In other words, you didn't elect yourself. God elected you. And the whole point of being chosen is that God chose you and you did not choose. And that's a message that runs throughout the Old Testament, even in the verses where people say, oh, well, you know, God or Joseph or Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. It's such a funny verse because then he goes on to say, um, you cannot. In other words, unless you're part of my house and my family, you can't choose. And then it turns out that Joshua is another word for Jesus. So, yeah, we're all Paul's making the point that, look, we've all we've all we've all messed up and we cannot choose because we're we're dead. He's going to go on to make that point and our hearts are are hard and so we we need this thing called a savior. <laughs> well the, the the yeah it seems like really now what's happening is that you know Christ died for the ungodly. That's mm-hmm. that's everyone. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, that seems like everyone is ungodly. Yeah, so Christ right. died. So that's another way of saying that Christ died for everyone. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He said it he said it over and over in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. All right, let's move on to verse 7. Mm-hmm. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. What do you see mm-hmm. there? Oh, well, I, I think he said that um, faith is righteousness. So I think a, a good person is someone that's kind of acted on their faith and done some deeds. He's just saying, look, uh, God is way more gracious than you. Um, so you know, when we talk about God as if he was less gracious than us, that just flies in the whole direction of Paul's argument. All right, let's continue on with um, with verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in other there? places, Paul says that he even died for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I, I think... I think it. I think there's this amazing picture in Scripture that, yeah, when we did our worst, God did His best. Is that we take the very life of Christ on the tree with our lust for law, and that's what the story in the garden is about. And in the very place where we take it, turns out He gives it. He forgives it. Um, so, um, yeah, Paul's making a sin is to not have faith, and when we didn't have faith. He died for us in order that we would have faith. Well, there's a way in which you can read that in kind of a narrowing way. And you can read it. God demonstrates his own love for our group in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our group. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. 
and yeah, that's in that you which, read that uh, us is us opposed to them. Right. But Paul hasn't been talking about his own group necessarily up to this point. And of course, he's going to go on to blow that notion to smithereens when, and, and deal with the fact that, look at this, God's group has rejected him. Now what's God going to do about it? And then he's going to get to the argument that he, he they their the elect became not elect in order that all could receive their election but that's what he's going to sp- spell out in a whole lot of detail so paul paul keeps coming back to this idea that god justifies everyone and then he takes up all the arguments against it so well the, uh, what yeah. i what i'd like to do is sort of when it says us just put the word ungodly because christ died mm-hmm. for the ungodly yeah so you could yeah, read that right. paul demonstrates his own love for us for, for the ungodly in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Yeah, and so you can, right, the ungodly, the sinners, us. Yep. Yeah. Okay, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Yeah. What do you yeah. see there? Well, him is not... Well, God, the the phrase um, saved by him from the wrath of God in the ESV, the of God is simply added by the translator. So it's not that you know, Paul has already said that the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness imprison the truth and the chains of their own disobedience. So God definitely has wrath towards my lack of lack of faith. Just, I think we talked about this, just like any dad has wrath towards his own children's uh, lack of faith, but, but the wrath is on behalf of the child. But here in this verse, he doesn't even say the wrath of God. He just says the wrath. Well, if I'm out of relationship with my father in heaven and I don't trust him, well, I'm going to be angry at him. So Jesus saves us from our wrath against God, and he saves us from the wrath of God against us. And if the original sin is that we don't trust him, and so we take his life on the tree, well, Jesus gives us his his own trust in the Father, which is exactly what the Father wants. Jesus also returns the life we take back to the tree because we lay our life down in him and come back into right relationship with the Father. So he's, he's kind of talking about these two things that happen in the atonement where God atones for sin, but he also gives us his righteousness. So um, he, 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 fixes the, he fixes our unrighteousness and gives us his own unrighteousness all together there at the, at the cross. So we're saved. When he says that, let's see, let's see. Oh, I'm going on to the next verse. Let's see. So, okay. Since therefore we have now been just, so I have to kind of, can I talk about the next verse a little bit too, David? Yeah, let's go on to verse, yeah, let's go on to verse 10. Yeah, so this is. For if if we were, for uh while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Yeah, so this, this is really all so beautiful that, um, you know, I, I think we just barely begin to scratch the amazing things that happen at the cross. When he says we've been justified by his blood, that's a confusing thing for us modern Americans, but not a confusing thing for people in the ancient world where they were used to sacrifice because the idea in the Old Testament is that the life is in, in the blood. So 
when Jesus gives us his blood, he's giving us his life. And then he goes on in the next verse, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, which is handing over his life, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So he he gives us his his life. And I think the, you know, the temptation in the garden, I, I think there's this amazing reality that somehow all the trees are reflected in the cross. And what is it that the scribes and Pharisees are wanting to take from the on the cross? They're wanting to take the life of Christ. And that's really the sin of humanity, that we try to make ourselves the Superman. And then lo and behold, the Superman gives us his life. But his life is something that I have to receive in humility, which turns into which turns into worship. So the, these two sentences are um, they're almost impossible to talk about because they're everything that lies at the core of the transition from the old man to the new man, which he's going to start talking about next. All right, verse eleven. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Yeah, yeah. So instead of boasting in ourselves, we're boasting in what God has done through the Superman, through Jesus. And uh, so instead of being proud that I'm a Christian, I'm grateful that I'm a Christian. And I'm compassionate on those that aren't Christians because I see a good relationship with my Father in heaven as a gift and not as a, you know, the way we've done it is so sad. We've turned a relationship to God within just some kind of present or some kind of um, uh, wage that we have to pay um, in order to get our father's stuff. So we're just like the older brother, just like the brothers, the older brother and the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. We both want our, we all want our father's stuff, whether religious, whether the religious older brother or the younger brother. And um, we, we don't see um, our father's, our father's banquet as the gift that it is. In other words, we don't love heaven. So we would, we want to use heaven in order to buy hell, which it's, it's just, it's, it's, uh, the lies of the evil one are so sneaky, but anyway, um, yeah. Once I'm grateful to be a follower of Jesus, then I can begin to experience life in the kingdom. Yeah. And it's nice to be released from the idea that, I can say to I can say to myself, "Well, look look what new thing God is doing with me," you know. And then uh, I'm not. It doesn't make me feel. Um, it it makes me feel humble and excited to see what God is doing in me. Yeah. So then I get to experience these good things without being puffed up about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you become a blessing to your brothers and sisters. Yeah, right, exactly. All right. Um, Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. That's the way the NIV has it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's pretty good. And um, I guess that... The, the really big thing I see in that is, uh, well, it, it it works, as, you're going to talk about this with Douglas Campbell, but it works itself around to the idea of superlapsarianism, 
Um, so you just hang on to that word. I guess we don't have to define it now. But I think the thing that is fascinating to me about um, well, about this verse, the, the way I see it, is it kind of it kind of undoes the notion that we inherit we inherit guilt from Adam um, because it says it's passed on because all people sinned. And in the Old Testament, people don't inherit guilt. In fact, that they the sins of the fathers are visited on the sons. In other words, you're going to suffer for your father's sins, but you're not punished for your father's sins. That's a huge topic in Ezekiel where it says each person will suffer for their sins. But what we do inherit from Adam is a, I'd call a propensity to sin. And he, he says, let's see, um, sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so desperate to all men because all men sinned. In the next verse, he says, for sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I, I think Paul is, and you know, people would disagree with me on this. I think Paul is pointing back to this amazing thing in the garden story, and that is that before the fall, before Adam and Eve take from the tree, something is not good. God says it's not good that the Adam is alone, which is so shocking because the Adam is standing in paradise with God, who is love. So Adam is in the very presence of love, and he doesn't know he's in the presence of love. He's alone. So it's like, it's like he's sitting in that theater that you talked about, and he doesn't know it. He's, or he's like at the great banquet, and he doesn't taste it. He's, he's uh, well, he's just like a little infant that was just born into this world and doesn't know who its mom is or dad is. Or, so Adam is alone, which means he does not have faith in love, and love is his dad. And it's after God says it's not good that the Adam is alone that then he sets up the tree. And, and if I think of sin as missing the mark, the Greek word, or sin as an incompleteness in me. And I realized that for Paul, really the opposite of, of uh, faith, the opposite of faith is sin. Um, so sin is not trusting God and righteousness is trusting God. And yet now God has to create this trust in him. So the whole point, and this is where it gets to super lapsarianism. In other words, it's the, the big idea is that God knew what he was doing the whole time, is that when God put the tree in the garden, when God allowed the snake into the garden in that story, and for now, trying not to get all hung up on the details of that with, with a lot of unimportant questions about the location of the garden and stuff. But actually, I think ultimately the garden is, our, is in our heart. But, but the but the point is that um, God knew what he was doing when he allowed Adam and Eve to take the fruit from the tree. And the, the big point is that Adam had sin, but he wasn't aware of his, he wasn't aware of his own sin. So he says sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you think about that, law is taking knowledge of good and evil, like in a law book, in order to justify myself. It's taking knowledge of the good in order that I would apply it to my life, in order that I would make myself in the image of God. Grace is God giving me himself, who is the good, and making me in his own image in an entirely different way. 
um, as a gift. So um, what what I think Paul is, he, he's, he's going back to the very start and he's saying, um, we all tend to think we're complete, but we haven't been completed yet. We don't have faith yet. Um, and then, of course, God goes on to give the law on Mount Sinai. But I, I think I think Paul is making the point in Romans that the law isn't just Mount Sinai. The law is the knowledge of good and evil. And that's why the Gentiles have it in their hearts, just like the Hebrews, because we all have taken this knowledge to try to justify ourselves. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me, too, is that, it, that you know, that sin is connected to death. And when I was, I said I didn't grow up going to church, but when I went around church, they said that the penalty for sin was eternal conscious torment. Yeah, right. Which has a little different ring to it than death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's an entirely different ring to it. And, I, you know, that's a huge topic. But I'd say, well, yeah, e- eternity, um, th- there is a... <laughs> the, the, well, it's a philosophical conundrum because how can you have an eternal death? Because the death is a cessation of life. So in order to have an eternal death, you've got to have an eternal keep resurrecting these dead people, right? So that's I don't think that's at all the picture in Scripture. But the picture in Scripture, you know, Paul says, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh in Colossians, is that when we take that knowledge and begin to try to justify ourselves, we separate ourselves from God, and that is that is a death. And then, when we're reconciled to God at, at the cross, that's the death of death, which is the end of that division, which is life. I I think that's the picture that goes through all of Paul and John and in, in the Revelation. Yeah, that death. I think the death and life. Once you get that, you're going back and forth between death and life. Then that's much more productive than going back and forth between life and eternal conscious torment because that that juxtaposition then doesn't make sense yeah and you and the what was shocking for me when i really got into it is you certainly find the idea of people suffer torment and there is this eternity god is eternity the fire is eternal his love is eternal his very being is eternal but eternal conscious torment I just couldn't find anywhere. There's there's a discipline or a punishment, eternal punishment that um, Jesus talked about. But that very punishment is the fire, which happens to be the love of God, which destroys death in the revelation. So death and Hades get thrown into this lake of eternal punishment and death is no more. So the eternal punishment is life. In other words, God and, you know, and. Jesus said that. I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life. In other words, you you want to run from life. That's the story of humanity. But life mm-hmm. will catch you, and it will kill. It will kill this ego, this false self in which you're trapped, and God will bring bring you home. But the the I think the the wonderful thing that happens in verses twelve and thirteen of chapter five is that when you come home, you will know something you did not know before you will know and love your creator um and which is really the story of every little kid right you every little kid at some point in some way tries to run away from home because they don't know how good they have it 
And then hopefully, if the story is playing the way the story of redemption plays in Scripture, which ultimately they all will, um, the father or the mother, they bring the child home with an act of mercy. And the child comes home, and they're grateful for their mom or dad. So they're born into a loving home, surrounded by love, but they don't know what love is until you, you grow and you begin to have faith in who your parents are. And I think that's the story that well, can I tell you a story about my daughter? Because I keep wanting to yeah. tell this story because this is the one that keeps popping in my head. But Elizabeth is kind of our strong-willed one, and she now lives at home with us. She's just the sweetest person in the world. She's she's in her late 20s now. But when she was little one day, I mean, she was having a bad day. And she just, I remember at one point, she just screamed out, I don't need a mommy. I don't need a daddy. I don't want a daddy. And I said, I just looked at her and said, okay. That's fine, honey. And I stopped talking to her. I, you know, She's in my house. I pay for everything she has. She's surrounded by heaven. She has all the clean water, food, everything she could need, all her toys. But uh, I just kind of started ignoring her. And uh, you could tell, you know, she felt all grown up for a little while. But late by the, in the afternoon, she was just dying. And I said, well, I'm going to Walgreens. And she asked me if she could go. And I nodded or something. You know, so I'm still talking to her but just not mm-hmm. having any conversations with her. We get in the car and I remember she's sitting there in the silence. And I just sat there in the silence for a while. And then she, she just utterly broke down. She just like, it was like convulsion sobs going, I want a daddy. I want a mommy. I'm so sorry. I want to come home. And the funny thing was she was at home the whole time, but she couldn't enjoy it because she was so stuck in her own little ego. And so the most compassionate thing for me to do was expose her ego to herself. And I, I think, you know, the story of the fall and redemption is a little bit like that story. So by the time the day was done, Elizabeth wasn't the same. She had some gratitude for me and for Susan, and she enjoyed home more at the end of the day than she did at the beginning. And I think that's the big story that God is telling with all of humanity. All right, well let's let's continue on. I think we're we're getting ready to go to verse 14, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's now this is where it gets just huge, but I you know, I think he's saying that He's saying there's something going on that's kind of parallel, I think, between the tree and the garden. And then when God gives the commandments to uh, in Moses, I think he's saying, look, you know, you want knowledge of good and evil. Here's the definitive knowledge of good and evil. And yet you still are going to, it's still death is going to reign. And death has already reigned um, up until this point because you do have knowledge of good and evil and you violated it. But But then I think everything turns when he says, when he makes this comment um, that whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a, and in Greek, in the NIV, it says pattern in, um, in the ESV, it says type. And that's because the Greek word is tupos. Um, he's a tupos of the one. And then literally translated be the one being about to be, or um, being about to, to appear. We have a terrible time with this verse because our categories are all bizarre. For the Hebrew, Adam is this is this collective noun, which means all of humanity. And so 
even in the even in the garden story in Genesis, scholars debate this, but it appears that you can read it with the article is well, a lot of times they'll, they'll use the word the article, or I mean, they'll use the word the as an article to modify the word Adam. Um, and then there are also implicate there are little indicators of whether or not they're using Adam as a proper a proper noun, like a name, or they're using it in this general way. It appears, this is what I meant to say, it appears that Adam may not even be used as a proper noun in the Genesis story. So when it talks about Adam and the tree, it's talking about humanity in the tree. And when we talk about Eve, Eve is the right side of Adam. She's part of Adam. So Adam really means humanity, and it's all of humanity. And yet then throughout the Old Testament, many times Adam will appear with the article, which is is a way of saying um, all of humanity is really one person, and somehow this person is all present in the Adam. Well, if you say that the Adam, if you say that humanity is a type of the one being about to be, the one that's coming, um, you're saying that the first Adam is a type of the last Adam or the super Adam, the superman. So in church, what we did during the sermon is I took a piece of modeling clay from Hobby Lobby or something, and then I have a Superman figurine because we've been asking that question, how do we become Superman? And I took the Superman figurine and pressed it into the clay, and then when you remove the figurine from the clay, you're left with an imprint. That's a, that's a tupos. And what Paul is saying is that's us, which is fascinating because it means on the surface we may look like Superman, and yet on the inside we're like empty of Superman. So the tupos is the presence of the experience of an absence. So if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, um, the the tupos is like a, a lie that's longing for the truth, or um, uh, something that's lost that's longing for the way. So we have... The tupas is this reality that we as humans have knowledge of the good, and yet we're not good. So um, he's saying that's the state of humanity. And the the amazing thing that we talked about in some laser, later sermons is that we're somehow aware of this. We're, we're somehow aware of our own inadequacy. So no matter where you go in the world, People are not at home in themselves. They're all, they're all aware something's wrong with me. Something needs to get fixed. And I think it, Paul is saying, well, you're a tupos. And there are all sorts of implications of that. One of which I think is most exciting is that there there is every bit of absence in me corresponds to a fullness in Christ. Or another way to say that is every sin that I will commit in this world corresponds to a grace that is going to be revealed in Christ Jesus. So that means my sin is not purposeless. I, I sh- Paul's going to go on to talk about, shall we sin that grace may abound? <laughs> you know, and he says, hell no. But the wonderful news is that once I realize what sin is, um, Paul is saying, look, all of your sin has a purpose. Because how is it that you make someone like an Apostle Paul? Well, first you construct a, a Rabbi Saul and then you forgive him. And that transforms him into this amazing new creation who is the apostle of grace. And how do you make Peter the rock upon whom, you know, whose faith upon whom the church is, is built? Well, you um, allow Peter to make himself into Peter the coward, and then you shower him with grace. How do you, how do you make a John 
the beloved. Well, you start with a son of thunder who's so full of anger. You remember he wants to call down fire on a Samaritan village. You allow John to try to make himself utterly fail. And then you shower grace upon him and he becomes John the beloved. And I think Paul is saying the, the way that God made me on the road to Damascus is the way he makes all of us. Um, so later on in chapter six, he's even he's going to say, be be grateful for your tupas, for your old man, um, for that's where God reveals his his glory. All right. Well, we moved now to verse 15, which mm-hmm. to me is uh, really a key, a key passage. Verse 15. Mm-hmm. But the gift is not like the trespass. So if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's he's saying that the many who died in Adam now receive this. Are, that's the same many that received this grace in Christ. And if you ask yourself, well, who were the many that died in Adam? Well, it's... Okay, well, it's all human. It's everybody that sinned because he's just made that argument that this all comes from this Adam that is humanity. And there's a great article in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament written by Jeremias explaining why in Aramaic many often means all. And because Paul is a lot of times speaking out of the out of the Hebrew Old Testament or or um, or the Aramaic, which was kind of the popular version of that in, at the time, that that many often means all, and then clearly here it means all, because he's just talking about all who died in Adam. So, but the, but the many's are in parallel. So Paul's meaning is abundantly clear. Well, it, it helps me too if I use that word ungodly, then I can hear it, mm-hmm. but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the ungodly died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift of that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the ungodly? It's everybody. Yeah, being, that's great. Is, that's a great way to say it, I think. Yeah. Is being talked about here. Mm-hmm. Okay, verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many tres- but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's there's so much there, but I, I do think that's a, partly a way of saying it's not like God is just going to get us back to the garden. He's going to get us back to the garden in a, in a new way. and the comparison is making this analogy that is, well, you know, this sin was horrible. It launched the whole world into darkness. We're all suffering it now. Um, this, the judgment following the trespass. Um, but the gift is also part of the judgment. And the gift that comes after the trespass is so much greater. So, the you know the traditional idea that God is going to endlessly torture most of humanity, well, it just makes absolutely no sense with the flow of Paul's argument in verse sixteen. Um, so overwhelmingly, every human will turn around and say, "Thank you, God, for what you what you did um, by allowing for this trespass." 
leading to condemnation because that produced justification. Um, it changed, it created me as who I am, changed me into who I am. Well, yeah, I mean, let me read, read it again, kind of as I think about it, using the word of the, un, the, the ungodly. So mm-hmm. the judgment following the one sin of Adam brought condemnation or covered the ungodly in condemnation and death, but then the gift following the one act of righteousness of Jesus brought justification and covered the ungodly in justification. Yeah. Yep. So it's the same, it's the same t- groups of people that are being affected in both of these. Right. Well, there's another way to think of it. And Paul's going to develop this picture is God allowed us, he allows for us to create the tupas, the false man, which is willing what God does not will. And then he justifies the tupas, which is empty, by filling our judgment, our empty judgment, up with his judgment, which happens to be his blood. So the tupas is so amazing because that unique tupas that each one of us has gets filled with the unique grace of God in in our life. And so, well, you asked me to talk about that one picture that I mentioned in the sermon, so maybe we should wait to the end, or do you want me to talk about that now? The For me, the picture of how like the artist makes a a bronze statue or yeah let's say that yeah let's say that for the end i think okay all right yeah that's a good way for the end okay let's go to verse 17. yeah for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man how much more will those who receive god's abundant provision of grace of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man jesus christ Uh, what do you see there well a, a great little book, if people really want to get into this, is Paul is Carl Barth's book, Christ and Adam. But the thing he keeps making the point of is that the the old, just the fact that you have an old man that is unrighteous is dependent on the fact that there was a that there's a new man uh, that that we have an old man is dependent upon the reality of the new man. So the old man, even our sin, is dependent on the fact that God has chosen us in Christ Jesus. So the old man is like a vapor next to the new man. So, which is fascinating because it, it people are now are talking a lot about dualism and is the Bible dualistic? I think Paul's understanding is that well, there, there's a fundamental dualism between good and evil. And yet at the same time, evil really has no ontological substance. It's like an illusion or a myth. And the idea that David Artman creates himself or Peter Hyatt creates himself. I think one day in heaven, we'll look back and go, that was a nightmare. You know, that was just like a <laughs> bad dream. And the reality of who we are will be so much more substantive that the Paul also talks about kind of about the false self, which is, I think, is a way of creating the old man that to that one day to compare the new man who, who we are in Christ with who we think we are in this world is it really is like waking from a dream. And that's a lot of what Paul says. So there's not a, there's not a evil and good are not equal opposites. Um, evil is just, it's the manifest absence of the good. And it's, and yet the good is, the good is dependent on, uh, the evil is dependent on the good in the same way that like a light is dependent on shadow. Uh, 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 shadow is defined by what it is not. 
and an evil is defined in, in a similar sort of way. Um, so, in other words, the grace of God is, and God is grace. God is so much more powerful than all our ability to sin. And the absurdity that we could undo the judgment of God with our own judgment will be revealed to us one day. Well, verse 17 is, there's something that's said about it uh, by people who aren't convinced that this really overflows to everybody because what they say is it's, this is only for those who receive God's abundant provision of grace. So Mm -hmm. what they're saying is, okay, yeah, it's, it's there, but you've got to receive it. And if you don't receive it, then you don't get it. Yeah. Well, this is, and so in other words, they keep going back to the very thing Paul has been arguing for the first four chapters. Another word for receiving God's abundance of grace is the word faith. And Paul has been, his whole argument is you, you, Trust or faith is this gift, and they're right in one sense. Nobody can enjoy heaven without faith, without trust. Nobody enjoys the presence of their Father, who is all-powerful, if they don't trust their Father, who is all-powerful. But Paul is making the argument that God is creating that trust um, through the Superman, who, instead of um, instead of taking life, gives his very life. So the one who is most powerful makes himself the least powerful and surrenders himself to us in order to create trust in us. Um, so it is absolutely true that trust is necessary for heaven, mm-hmm. but it's not just that trust, it's not like faith is a ticket to get into heaven. Faith is heaven. That's what I, so maybe that's what we should have said a, an hour ago, is that faith isn't your way into heaven. Faith is itself heaven. If I don't if I don't trust um, my creator, heaven will burn like hell. Because um, I will think, and it's not that heaven changed, it's that I have not changed. I have not surrendered to the love of God. Well, the thing that, that again, this using this term, the ungodly, helps me. So, mm-hmm. so I can say, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, and who is death reigning? It's reigning over the un- ungodly. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness? Okay, that's the ungodly. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. So I could say, for if the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man over the ungodly, how much more will the ungodly mm-hmm. uh, reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? So I, yeah. I think. Those are and, both p- parallel again. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I guess, to be honest with you, David, how people don't see the reality of God redeeming everyone in these verses is a bit mystifying to me. So and I've been staring at them now for 30 years. Okay, let's go, to, let's, let's go on to verse 18. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also... One righteous act resulted in justification. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and what's kind of interesting about that verse is it really isn't justification and life. I think life is it's this genitive noun. So it really would be, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of life and then into all men, not simply for all men. 
But that's this picture, I think, of the life is in the blood. And Paul has a picture in his mind here. Jesus bleeds his life into the empty shell of a person that you thought you once were, and that's how you're justified. Um, And it's really clear that the condemnation that led for, for all men, it says all men, the one trespass for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification of life for or into all men it's it's just all in parallel and the all are the sinners they're the ungodly they're they're the humanity that paul has been talking about um since the start of his book and he's sending this of course to rome so you know that's the height of the pagan world at that time right so i can i could use the ungodly phrase again here. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for the ungodly, mm-hmm. so also one righteous act resulted in justification for the ungodly. Yep. Again, it's the same yep. It's the same group of people. Yeah, he's okay, verse, doing his parallels over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, now this is really beautiful. And I think this is something that the Western church has kind of lost and the Eastern church gets. Um, and, and that is that the, the one man's disobedience made many uh, sinners because we're all kind of like that one man. We all sin. Um, but, the, but the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So just as the emptiness of the first Adam shows up in every person that walks the face of the earth, so the fullness of the last Adam also shows up in every person that walks the earth. So the justification in Paul, and maybe there's a huge point that people miss. So yeah, this is, this is really big. And I think the church fathers got this and we lost it somewhere along the line. But people will talk about justification as if it's a way God just cooks the books or he cheats somehow and he gives us credit for stuff that isn't ours. I think what Paul is saying is that when Jesus gives you his life, he literally gives you his life, which means Jesus is living inside of you. So justification doesn't mean that you get a free pass because of your name in a book somewhere. Justification means that righteousness begins to show up in you. Another way to say that is we love because he first loved us. And uh, love isn't simply us. Love is the presence of God in us. Righteousness is the presence of Christ in us. And Paul says that. God has made him our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So people that argue, you know, faith is kind of their own deal. I'm, I'm like, well, Paul says it's a gift, and we're saved by the faith of Jesus. And Jesus is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. How much more, and that we can't boast, how much more clearly... Um, could could Paul say that? So um, the idea uh, with with some of the church fathers I got from reading, you know, some of Elaria's stuff, um, and then it makes sense with Scripture, is that when when I surrender to the Father, I'm not doing it alone. Jesus and I are doing it together. He said that apart from me, you can do nothing. But Peter, when you are grateful to God, when you love God, when when you give a cup of cold water to a child in my name, you're not doing that alone. That's me living my life through you 
because you actually are my body. This is the, we keep referring to all these things as metaphors, as simply metaphors, I should say. And I think Paul would say, I'm not kidding. You actually are, you actually are the body of, of Christ. Well, I can, in that verse 19, just to use my, go back to the ungodly Mm -hmm. so you can hear it better. Mm -hmm. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the ungodly Mm -hmm. were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the ungodly will be made righteous. Yeah. To me, it just, it just, it helps me to hear it because when you, when you say the many, you kind of keep wondering, well, who are the many? Yeah. Well, and uh, the ungodly are made godly. Why? Because God shows up in them. And the word ungodly is up above is, I mean, I, I think it gets translated a variety of ways, but I think what Paul is saying is you, you really are the temple. And um, when Jesus died on the cross, remember the curtain separating the inner sanctuary from the outer parts of the temple, it ripped in two. And the spirit of God got out. Um, and that, I think that's what happens. He's saying is that that's life. It wells up from within you because he said, I'll be a fountain of water in, in you. And it fills up that old empty stone temple that you thought was yourself. And you become a living temple, which is his, his very body. And, and then all those temples come together. Okay, so this is huge too. All those things come together in the super atom. Uh, so the, you know, the, picture of Irenaeus, the recapitulation theory, which is really, I think, just what Paul says. He says it in Ephesians 10, is that somehow humanity got blown apart when we sinned uh, by taking the knowledge from the tree. And then Jesus, he he gives up his spirit and that seed descends into every every person. And how exactly that happens and when it happens is partly a mystery. But then that seed, which is a seed of faith, causes us to trust the Father and come back into and come back to the Father, but also come back to each other because, you know, David, sorry, this I know this is creepy, but you and I are one body. So it's not just that my wife and I are one body, um, and that's a whole other topic, but I become a one body, one body with all of humanity, which is so utterly profound in that there's nobody that is a threat to me. Everybody is a blessing to me because they're all part of this body of which I am a unique part. And it was all that lie of the snake in the garden that blew the whole thing mm-hmm. apart. Well, but now the yeah, whole thing's what... coming back together with gratitude. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in the early church, you know, fathers like Gregory mm-hmm. of Nyssa. No, it was, um, it wasn't uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah, it was on the, on the human, on the human image of God or the creation of humanity, he understood that all of humanity was ultimately one body with Christ as its head. Yeah. And so the one body <laughs> would not become fully matured until each part of the body was filled and was made right with yeah. every other part of the body, and then everything would be recapitulated and what a profound vision of humanity because yeah. then if I each other, every other person that I see is now part of my own body. So why would I want to hurt them? Because if I hurt yeah. them, I'm hurting my own body. Exactly. So how's that for a motivation for evangelism? When I go out and I tell people about the love of Jesus, I'm reconstruct. I'm remembering, I'm pulling the body of Christ back together, and it's my body. I mean, I want an elbow in my body and five <laughs> fingers on each hand. And, and so everybody is this gift. And the, 
they get that word recapitulate from Ephesians 1.10. And recapitulato or some, whatever it is, I think is the Latin translation of the Greek. The Greek, I think, is even better. It's this verb anakephalio. And, you know, Greek has all these endings on it. So I don't know how the Greek scholars always um, correct me, it seems like. But anakephalio soste or anakephalio my or anakephalio o I think is how the the lexicon puts it but it's built on this word united under one wounded head and paul says this is the plan for the fullness of time to anakephalio all things under one head so mm-hmm. he he just says it and we translate it unite when it's such a much greater word that fits with the other things that paul says that this is this isn't just a theory of some church fathers this is the Bible, this is the heart of Paul's mm-hmm. theology, that we're all coming back together under this one wounded head, which, which David, is why you have to watch the movie The Iron Giant, because when you okay. get to the end, it's like the coolest picture of the recapitulation theory. And anyway. Uh, well, I also learned that that kafala head is the same kind of word that you would use for like the headwaters. Mm-hmm. So it's a source the kafala yeah, is source that, uh, yeah and, it's not it, it, it's the source of, of everything yeah. too yeah, yeah i think that and makes I, it profound yeah yeah the source and the logic and um in the if if anybody of your people listening have watched the iron giant what's so cool and why i wish i could just show that movie every sermon i preach is the iron giant makes this decision to be the superman because the little boy says you could be the superman he dies for the sins of the whole world. They're trying to kill him. Um, and he makes this choice to be the Superman. And the boy says, you are who you choose to be. The amazing thing is the Superman then gives his choice to us because the parts of this iron giant fall all over the world and people pick them up. And then they they fall in love with the iron giant for what he's done. And at the end of the movie, his head had landed on there. I get see, I'm so stupid. I get all emotional about this. His head lands on a glacier in uh, Greenland, and the last scene of the movie is all these body parts coming back to the head to be assembled. But now every body part is attached to a, a like a, a human, a child of Adam, because the little boy in the picture he takes the piece of the iron giant and he puts it in this empty box and keeps it under his bed. Well, that's exactly what we do when we go to the communion table. We take a piece of the Superman and we place him in the empty vessel that is our old man, and he grows there. And then the party is when all the pieces come back together, and and we we forget our emptiness because we're overwhelmed with the fullness, and we enjoy. What, the what's party. funny? What's funny is you know you're this. Uh... You're this great soccer player. Maybe we can just kind of start pulling this <laughs> back together. But but the um, we like Ted Lasso, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. there's the thing at the in, in one of the Ted Lasso episodes where they're they're out of town, and so he's looking for an activity for them to do together, you know. And his his whole thing is about building them together into this team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you yeah. know. He shows them that, that so they watch the Iron Giant movie. And it just shows them at the end they're all crying. You yeah, know. yeah, that that movie just gets me. And I go, it's because it's the gospel. It's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. All right, verse, I think we were at verse 20. The law was yeah. brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where mm-hmm. the sin increased, grace increased all the more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a, now this, is, this is where Paul um, really stresses people out, but it's 
he stresses this out because because he uh, because he offends us um and and he's making the point that God allowed this to happen for a reason so there was a reason that the tree was in the garden there's a reason that that Paul uh, or that Moses gave the stone tablets to Israel and the reason isn't to isn't that it saves us it shows us that we need a savior and that the law tells me what I should do and what I don't do. And then when I try to justify myself by the law, I end up growing the tupas, which is this ego, which is my boasting, which is like that, you know, <laughs> what we all do, what you do in ninth grade in high school when you play soccer. Mm-hmm. And he's saying all that boasting has a purpose because it's all sin. And we have this uh, a, a body of flesh. And the, in Paul, the problem with our flesh is not that it's physical, but that my own body only feels its own pain. It only feels its own pleasure. But if I become part of another body, well, I feel David's pleasure, his pain. It's a different, it's a different consciousness. But God grows that self-centered consciousness, or he allow, I should say he allows us to sin. He allows us to grow the false man um, because it's the false man that he fills with the new man. And the offense is is that God has a purpose for all this evil. I think it's human nature. Well, and here's the wrath. When he says Jesus undoes the wrath, I think mm-hmm. if people are honest, we're all incredibly furious with God. God, why would you allow for Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine? Why would you allow for Hitler to kill six million Jews? Why would you allow my wife to lie about me and divorce me? Or, I mean, my wife didn't, but hypoth- but why do you allow those things and paul is saying it's not an accident it all has a purpose which is incredibly offensive to the human ego when you spin it out and and i think the offense is this that if god justifies all it means that no one can justify themselves and um i have to humiliate i have to be humbled to 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 the point of being a creation of the creator but the other side of that formula is is the great banquet new creation and and where the sin increase the grace increased all the more well if if sin increases and then somehow is 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 able to permanently destroy or remove parts of the body then that's then then grace didn't increase all the more so yeah <laughs> well, sin increases well grace has to increase increase all the more if that does if the grace doesn't increase all the more then the body doesn't come back together well, yeah, and not only that, if you postulate someplace that, so if if I think most people would say that hell is a place of sin, right, where the evil one like torments humanity, and he's given this. It, hell is a place where sin increased. Well, if there is this place of endless conscious torment that's never overcome, then Romans five just isn't true, and particularly this last verse or the second to last verse, um, where sin increased grace abounded all the more. Well, sin increased in this place that you're postulating where God consigns people to their own unrighteousness and c- call that endless conscious torment or, or whatever. That place has to get filled up with, with grace if that verse is true. And Paul's going to go on in Romans because he's, t- he'll, he'll, he's going to yeah. quote the Old Testament throughout the whole thing. 
It's where they were called, not my people. There they will be called my people. Um, and that's somehow the glory of God, which in the Old Testament, the glory of God is is the, you know, the God man that keeps showing up. And he's yeah. this man on on fire. And I'm like, oh, this all fits together. God is glorified <laughs> by saving people. And the more he saves people, the more he's glorified. And what is it that the evil one one does? He tricks the people that say they are God's followers into stealing his glory by saying he can't overcome darkness and death and sin and hell. And Paul is saying, no, it gets it got so bad so God can show you how good he is. Okay, verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and righteousness, he says, faith is reckoned as righteousness. Um, in other words, I think he's saying God is allowing you to observe your own creation. Um, and I, you and know, just, eternal just to throw, life is thanking God for that. And just to throw the ungodly in there again, as I like to do mm -hmm. to kind of mm -hmm. keep it in my mind. So just as sin reigned in death over the ungodly, uh, so mm -hmm. also grace might reign through righteousness over the ungodly uh, mm -hmm. to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah. So it just yeah. seems that, that when you keep that parallelism going all the way through, it just makes complete and total sense. But when you break it yeah. down and say one group is different than the other group some way, then it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. And um, eternal life, and this is where the Superman is so beautiful. Eternal life is not um, holding life to yourself. Eternal life is giving your life away. So the thing the Superman does on the cross is we take his life. That's a picture of ungodliness. And there he gives his life, which is a picture of godliness. And when all the members of the body give life rather than take life, the life circulates through the blood of the body and the whole body begins to live and the whole body begins to experience joy and that's why faith is absolutely essential. Faith is that decision in me to trust love, who is my father, to mm -hmm. give my life to my wife. And my wife gives her life to me. And then we give it to our children. They give it back to us. And then we give it to the neighbors. And the whole thing ends in this great party where no one is proud. Everyone is grateful and all have fun. We all pass so, the ball. So the trophy the of my, my my selfishness, the irony is that my trophy of me passing the ball turns out to be this great gift because once I come face to face with grace, I actually do pass the ball. And it, lo and yeah. behold, it's the funnest possible thing to, to participate in the life of my father. So so we pass the ball. And so we're all now we need to get to the point where we're all passing the ball. So everybody is important. Each person is unique, has a, has mm -hmm. a, has a, is unique and indispensable that the body right. then would would come together. So so now what I'm seeing is that each person is some kind of indescribably beautiful um, uh, uh, creation of God that needs to be fully expressed. And there's a story that you tell about a sculptor who came up yeah. to you. And I, I want to close on that story. Yeah, so you could think of it this way. is Scripture talks about faith as being like gold, and faith is a decision, but it's God's decision in us to pass the life. And every part of my body has a different shape. 
and a different function, but every part of my body passes the same life. And the life flows through all the members of my body in this river, which is a river of life. So, but to do that, I have to trust every, if, if each body part was conscious, it would have to trust. And that's the gold. Well, I had a guy at a church who makes these bronze statues. This was years ago, you know, that you can see in parks around Denver and stuff of, you know, like an elk or whatever. And I was talking about all of this from, I think probably from Genesis or I talk about it a lot because it shows up in all, I think in every book of the Bible, basically. But he came up afterwards with tears in his eyes and he said, oh, Peter, I get what you're saying. I'm, I'm the, and he introduced himself and he ended up making me some sculptures and stuff. But he said, um, I need you. I want to tell you, I, I, I'm an artist and I do this for a living. And the way I make one of these bronze statues is I, I fashion it out of wax. I, you know, because wax is easy to work with. And then I encase it in this, uh, in clay, uh, an earthen vessel. I make it an earthen vessel. And then I take that earthen vessel and I put it in an oven and I fire it. I heat it up. And when I do, the wax melts out of the interior of this, of this vessel. And there's this great line in Psalm 22 where Jesus talks about his, his heart melting like wax. And I go, yeah, that's because you're, you, you're doing this with us, but it creates a void. And that void is really what the word for that would be a tupos. It's an imprint within that, that earthen vessel. And then he says, then he said, and then I take um, molten bronze, um, not gold, because that's a little too expensive, but he could use gold. I take molten metal. And you remember Jesus is described as a man of molten metal, like fiery metal. And he says, I pour it into the void. And the, the metal fills up all the empty spaces in that earthen vessel. And that, that empty space is like sin. Where sin increased in the tupas that is me, then grace abounds all the more. And what is that grace? Well, it's the faith of Jesus given to me on the cross. It's, you can think of it as being poured in like blood. And then I remember he was standing there with tears in his eyes and he said, I said something like, I never quite understood this, but it's always been such a religious experience for me that I, when I break that earthen vessel off of the statue and it reveals the glory within. And the, I think Paul is saying, yeah, and that's us. That's who we we truly are. And that emptiness has a, has a purpose. And he's going to go on to talk about, well, shall we sin that grace may abound? And he's going to make all these great arguments. Well, you just don't understand what I'm talking about here, if you want to sin, you've already sinned a plenty and the grace of God is going to be revealed in, in these things. And so I can live my life then full of hope and without regret. Once I surrender, I don't have to, I don't have to regret those places. I don't have to add to those places, but then I'm, I'm free. And well, this is what we've been talking about recently if if i if my old man that empty self cannot be justified and my my new self is the new me that's already been justified there is no peter hyatt that needs to be defended or justified there's no ego i have no everything is a gift and suddenly then i'm set free to run around the back of the yard with my red cape and my blue leotards well so it it turns out that you are special yeah, yeah, Peter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the right. amazing thing is, is that I am too. Yeah, and yep. everybody else is. Yeah, and I, when you get this picture, it's just really beautiful. 
yeah, I think the thing you mentioned to me that you liked was I, I talked in one of the sermons about how the world tells us that we're the sperm that made it. And we do that through competition by beating our neighbor. But the actually the ultimate seed is the one that gives his life for all. So um, I'm, but I'm special in that I give it in a unique way. You give in a unique way. We all contribute. Um, we all, the, the life flows through each of us in this, this body. So life really isn't the survival of the fittest. Life is a sacrifice of the fittest. And what's utterly shocking is you realize that the evil one has tempted the church into telling people that salvation is a survival of the fittest. And it turns out that salvation is a sacrifice of the fittest. It's when everybody um, loves the way Jesus loved us. Well, this is a beautiful vision. I'm thoroughly enjoying listening along as you're working your way through Romans in your sermon series, and we'll let you get a little further along, and we'll uh, check back in with you, okay? Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Thanks, David. I sure appreciate you doing this. You're welcome. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.